There's a restaurant in Rome, so I've read, that's built around the ruins of an old temple. And the pillars, two of them, I've read, are still visible. And then the, the restaurant features the, this, these pillars and is proud of the ancient origins of this building where they, where they now serve excellent pasta and, uh, I've read, uh, great local cuisine. What's interesting, however, is that in the ancient world, in Corinth, where Paul was writing, in his day, p- temples, pagan temples, were actually restaurants. Not really, but they certainly served lots of food and were the center for cuisine. The food involved in those temples that were spread throughout Corinth impacted life for everybody. Whether you ate it and enjoyed it or whether you shunned it and despised it, that food impacted your life. Now, while it's true that pagan temples and food associated with those temples are not really on our radar today. None of us are worried about food sacrifice to idols. Yet, the principles that Paul talks with the church, the church in Corinth about, and the personal freedom that interfaces with faith is vital for us to understand today. And the core importance of God's love, that 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 mix of knowledge and love is exceedingly relevant for our lives today. How do you combine and live out a Christian faith in a secular world? How do you relate to others who differ from you in their personal testimony and, and convictions? What part does knowledge play and what part does personal conviction play? What about your rights? What about your privileges? I'd like to express my appreciation just as we begin our study today for my friend Mike Talley, who spoke last week. I know it was a blessing, and I know that all of you are continuing to pray for him as God is is, uh, blessing him even through the difficult time. And uh, looking back, I haven't been in this pulpit for a while. Uh, a couple of weeks before that, it was Joel Worf, and then before that was Jason Worf giving their farewell addresses, scriptures from, uh, with, with inspirational words of encouragement, the last two Sabbaths in July. But this Sabbath, we are back to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look into chapter number 8. It says in verse number 1, Now about food, sacrifice to idols. That's just where it begins. And what do you do with that? What do you do with with food, sacrifice to idols? Well, it's no problem for me, you might say. But for Jews, in Paul's day, it was a big problem. Most Jews wouldn't touch it. That's where Jewish butchers began. And most likely the kosher labels. Maybe not back then with the label, but I'm sure it was identified as good or bad. Jews didn't want to be involved, not even in the least 
with the worship of idols. They didn't want to have anything to do with man-made gods or man-made goddesses or the worshiping any human ruler. This was a pervasive problem, not just in Corinth, but throughout the Asia Minor region when Paul was writing the church to the church in Rome. He dealt with a similar issue. Some people in the church were so concerned and had a bit of an ascetic bent that they resorted to vegetarianism in order to deal with this problem. Notice Romans chapter 14, verse number 2. Paul says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Ah, vegetarianism right there in Rome. So what do you do? What do you do when the food has been a part of a pagan ritual? What do you do? Do you eat the meat that's been consecrated to Artemis, the moon goddess and patron saint of hunters? Do you eat the offering that's been given to Venus, the goddess of love and beauty and fertility? Do you consume what was placed before Diana, the goddess of the hunt, the moon, and birth? What do you do? Well, if you ate it, it would imply that you were experientially being involved in the worship of this God. That's really what eating that food meant. At least that's what some people thought. And what do you do if you become a Christian in a place like this, in a place like Corinth, and someone that you've known for years and years since childhood invites you to dinner? You become a Christian. You have new convictions, new new priorities, and someone from life invites you over for dinner, someone that's had you for dinner many times before. Maybe it's a holiday meal, and the food being fed you that evening was tainted by paganism. What do you do? Do you just cut off all your relationships and say, no, thank you, and excuse yourself from the meal? My second year at Walla Walla College back in the day was uh, spent as off-campus as a student missionary of sorts. It was actually a task force worker, and I served in a little church in Forks, Washington. Maybe some of you have visited the Olympic Peninsula and in the northwest corner of the state of Washington. It's a beautiful place. Well, while there, I part of my uh, responsibilities was outreach and ministry to the Quileut Indian tribe that is just on that northwest tip of, of our state. I got acquainted with a number of families, and one of them invited me to dinner at their home. It was a delicious meal. Spaghetti with meat sauce. I was a vegetarian. I ate the whole thing and asked for seconds. <laughs> the situation was a bit more complicated and more nuanced for sure in Corinth, for sure. Many followers of Jesus came from a Jewish background. They were Jews from birth. Then they accepted Christ as Savior and Lord and soon coming King. But the problem was much of the food offered in the marketplace was associated with this pagan worship. And no strict Jew would ever eat that food. 
It was defiling. It was sacrilegious. It was irreverent. And there was also the issue, to complicate things, of feast days, Jewish feast days. Jews were accustomed to a number of these special days throughout the year, Passover and Pentecost, Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement. What about Gentile converts? What about Jewish converts? Were they to keep these festivals and feasts? And even more complicated than that, how about circumcision? The sign of being God's person in the, in the Old Testament. Was that to be a requirement for being a follower of Jesus? Paul wrote the book of Corinth about six years after the first council meeting of the early church. About 48 A.D. The book of First Corinthians was probably written around 54 A.D. But so six years before, Paul had been a part of this great council meeting. And this was a historic event where the church waded into this hazardous and unsettling territory of what do we do with all these people who are converting to Christianity? What about all these requirements that have been a part of Judaism? And the church voted there to unburden itself of many of the unnecessary and ancient rules and requirements. This is what James, who stood up at the final moments of that council, he said in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 19, it is my judgment, James speaking, therefore that we should not make make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled, and from uh, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. That's it. All the Old Testament sacrificial rules in just a nutshell. Uh, that says nothing about God's Ten Commandment law, but this, all the sacrimon- uh, sacred um, sacrificial rules and, and whatnot, all, all bundled up. And interestingly, Paul and his companion, Barnabas, were commissioned to include this message with the gospel presentation they were taking to the world, to the Gentiles. He was the official head of the decree being given to the world. So I asked the question, here is now six years later, why doesn't Paul deal with this issue by quoting what the council recommended? Now, we don't have all the story. We don't know what Paul said when he was there. Maybe he told them about that. Maybe they knew about this. But I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't say it in 1 Corinthians and therefore allows us to to look into some insightful uh, conversation that he had with the church about this most important issue. Paul's teaching brings to light some some crucial understandings for us today in College Place, 2,000 years later. The church was splintering. The church was dividing. It It was challenging and being challenged over this issue. One group of people, we might call them the wise ones or the smart ones or whatever, they took the view that since there was only one God, 
one true God, that all these idols represent nothing more than human imagination. So let's not worry about it. There's nothing to it. It's absurd, therefore, to refuse to eat anything that's been offered to these idols, since these idols are nothing. That's basically what Paul says in verse number 4 of 1 Corinthians 8. He says, so then, about eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that, and this is a little quote here, you notice, an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's what this group of people in the church were saying. An idol is nothing at all in the world. This was the enlightened segment's cry. We know, we know, we know this. We know we all possess knowledge. That's the way the book starts out in chapter number 8 and verse number 1. We know. They knew that there was only one God. His name is Yahweh, the creator God, the one who sustains all life, the one who is given life to every creature on earth. They knew better than to give any credence to this foolish thinking about idols. They weren't about to have their liberty compromised by uh, primitive, immature, irrational thinking, convictions. And Paul was most likely similarly convicted. He knew idols were nothing. He knew that there was only one true God. And he knew that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior, not among many. He was the only Lord and Savior. Paul's words to the church in Rome give us a clear clear picture of Paul's, the strength of Paul's conviction regarding this truth. Romans chapter 14, verse number 5, dealing with a similar issue. You can look at these two chapters and see that they're quite uh, similar. Romans 15, I mean 14, verse 5, he says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, figure this out. God's given you a brain. He wants you to use your brain. And Paul believed that Christians had the right to personal convictions on such matters as this. But, and this is where it gets a little bit personal, a little bit picky, Paul did not believe that his freedom should be exercised at someone else's expense. That's a very important truth. That's good to know. Paul starts out this chapter. You see it there in verse number one. We all have knowledge. That's what this group was saying. We all have knowledge. We all know about this. Paul is quoting these Corinthian teachers who had coined a slogan to summarize their advice to everyone. We all have knowledge. We all know that there's nothing to this idle thing. We all know it's nothing at all. Christians have an inside, a deep knowing of the real truth. And this knowledge isn't disturbed by something so trivial as idols and food sacrificed to idols. Idols mean nothing. That's what it says in verse number four. They're nothing in the world. They're just human conjurings. They're worldly nonsense. No eating of sacrificial meat matters whatsoever. Neither does it matter if you go into a pagan temple or you attend a festal gathering there because there's no such thing. So what if it's Jupiter, the, the god of thunder, and, 
and, and God of the sky, or Minerva, the, the goddess of wisdom, the arts and trade and strategy, or Neptune, the god of water, sea, earthquakes, hurricanes, and, and horses. And no matter the entire pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses, they were just mere human devisings. They amounted to nothing of, of any consequence. And that's good to know. Paul says, we know. That's good to know. But in the raw, in the raw, knowledge tends to conceit. Paul says it clearly. Verse number one again. Knowledge puffs up. (laughs) It has a fatal flaw. Unless knowledge is wed with humility, it induces conceit. It breeds superiority. You've heard it said, I'm sure, that the more you know, the more you're conscious, you're conscious of what you don't know. Talk to any PhD. They'll tell you. The more you learn about a subject, the more you're able to see that all you're knowing is a mere fragment of what, it, what is yet to be known. My wife and I, uh, last weekend, we were camping at Mount Rainier and we're listening to a, a book, Audible, and it's about Albert Einstein amazing guy but he didn't know a lot of things and even till the end of his life he was confused on some things that he even said were laws that's why those who are truly learned are also essentially humble minded but that's not the way things were working out in Corinth that, that wasn't typical for the church there And I have to say, we have challenges with that too here in College Place, Washington, 2,000 years later. Unfortunately, it's the case that enlightenment and following the enlightened way often carries with it a tinge of arrogance, just a bit of conceit, and the feeling that I'm a bit superior to you. I was in Ukraine, and I was doing public evangelism, uh, Ed. So public evangelism in the Ukraine. And a woman attending the series invited the local pastor and I to her home for a little treat after one of the meetings. Now, each one of the meetings was prefaced by lectures on health. And they they were very good lectures, but the only problem was that the principles that were being taught in those health lectures reached way beyond what anyone there in the audience would be able to uh, participate in. They couldn't find most of the things were being recommended as foods to eat by these people that came from the United States to give these health lectures. And I thought, wow, this is a little bit out of place. This lady invited us to her house, the pastor and I. And when we walked in, Uh, She offered us her best delicacy, and it wasn't one of these, a fish cracker, but it was a cracker with a fish on it, and when I say a fish, it was a whole fish. I mean, the whole fish was laying there, eyes, tail, fins. I'm sure the backbone was in there, and I ate the whole thing. I don't even remember what it tasted like because I swallowed it real fast. (laughs) Did I tell you I'm a vegetarian? 
I ate it with as much gratitude as I could muster. Didn't say a thing. Enlightened church members in Corinth who knew that idols were non-existent looked down their nose at members who were troubled by food that they felt was tarnished. The enlightened thought this was foolishness. Their knowledge puffed them up. That's often the way it is, isn't it? Someone learns a little and they imagine that they know a lot. Their knowledge puffs them up. That's why that saying that goes, a little learning is a dangerous thing. It is. And Paul says it, I like the way he says it even better in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Don't you like that? That says a lot, doesn't it? You know, the trouble always lurks in our life, in our home, in our community, in our nation, when there is a little knowledge and even less humility. For me, oh, to know a bit more about people, their story. Oh, to know a bit more about me, my own limitations, my own foibles. Oh, to ponder things that are deep in order to understand life better. Then we might be moved to use our power to help rather than destroy. How many times I've destroyed because I thought I knew. Paul says knowledge puffs up while love builds up. (laughs) Knowledge isn't enough, you see. It's not enough just to have correct insight. If you have merely correct insight, then you're ultimately inadequate. Ultimately. How many times have I been right in my thinking? I knew I was right. At least I thought I was right. (laughs) But I was so wrong in my actions, so wrong in my attitudes toward others, offending, walking over people's feelings, ignoring others' convictions, misjudging people's motives, all because I thought I knew. I thought I knew. Knowledge puffs up and plows us over the top of others. That's what it does. And the real cure, well, you know, just as a little faith is not cured by less faith, but more, so too it's true that the remedy for insufficient knowledge is not less knowledge. (laughs) It's more knowledge, but not just knowledge. Knowledge and love. That's what Paul says. Knowledge and love. And not just love, because we can drum that up. People in the world can drum that. That's not what Paul says. It's not just love. It's God's love. Not just my love. It's God's love. God's love, the love of God in me, inspired by the love of God for me. That's what Paul says. 
That's what binds you and me together. It's not our knowledge. We have a lot of things that cause us to have fellowship, but the thing that binds us is our love. Our love for each other. Our love that, that, that has, you know, doesn't pit you against me. That's what my knowledge does. My knowledge can make me walk over the top of you with disgust and disdain at your ignorance. Your narrow-mindedness. Your simple-minded convictions. That's what knowledge can do for me. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Such love, God's love, and the insight that it brings is not a matter of my cleverness, my ability, my insight. It's not something that I drum up, this love. It's something that is given me. It's a gift of God is what it is. It's a love that comes not by knowledge. It's a love that comes by revelation. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, whom, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There Paul gives it. He says, this is how it happens. This is why it happens. Because there is a creator God, a God who sustains all of existence, and he has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. In him I see God. And I see as I ought to see. I know as I ought to know. By the way, God is trying to do that for me, for you, every moment of my life. Every time I open his word, he's trying to penetrate through my senses to let me know. He's speaking to me, to you, through circumstances, through situations, through relationships. He's speaking to you, to me, through challenges, through troubles, through hardships, <coughs> through joys. He speaks to us through nature. I saw the beauty of nature last Sabbath, Mount Rainier. God was speaking. And he's challenging us to hear, to listen, to pay attention, to respond, to acknowledge, to yield, to submit. Not just to knowledge. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But then look at this, what he says. Catch this, verse 3. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now think about that just for a minute. That doesn't quite go the way I think it should have gone. Was Paul mistaken? Shouldn't he have said this? Shouldn't he have said, <coughs> whoever loves God knows God? Shouldn't he have said that? Whoever loves God knows God? No, he didn't say that. He said, whoever loves God is known by God. Isn't that an interesting twist? When God makes himself known to us, that's when love is born. It's not when I know him. It's when he makes himself known to me. That's when love is born. It's not my knowledge. It's by inspiration. It's by revelation. It's by the work of God's spirit in me, in you. True love is evoked. Not by me knowing God. It's evoked by him in me. His spirit. Many people say they know God. 
But when you look at their life, when you look at their actions, when you look at their attitudes and their behaviors and the things they say, you got to go, wow. Do they really? God knowing me is the issue. God revealing his love for me through Jesus Christ, that's the issue. And that is a different kind of love. A self-sacrificing love. A love that laid down his life for me, love. It's an act of love that pursues and rights wrongs, it seeks justice, it loves mercy, it walks humbly. Paul's world, the church he planted in Corinth, and by God's strength and power, needed not more knowledge. They needed more love. They needed more love. Verses 7 and 8. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think that think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. You see, some people in Corinth were struggling before accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they had been regular worshipers at these temples. They had over and over again through life visited the shrines of idols. Their whole existence and thinking was tied up with this mindset. That's where it went when they thought of these things. And they knew as only someone like that, with that kind of a background, could know the darkness of this mystery the fear, and the sense that when you're feasting, when you're taking that food, when that, when that God's food is on your table, not Lord God's, but Venus and Neptune and whatever, these other gods, when that food is on your table, you're really eating and drinking that God himself. That's what they knew from before. They were taking that God's life and into their life. And then there was all that stuff that happened in the drunken stupor where you could give a little bit more money to the gods and have men and women serve you in ways that were profane. And having lived around all that, having shared in that darkness for so many years, it was difficult. It was difficult in memory and in imagination to separate one part from another part. Have you ever found that to be the case for you? Trying to separate the whole thing. How does that work together? Yes, you become a Christian. You, you're rescued from the darkness and now you love the light of God. You, you love his freedom and his forgiveness but looking back you kind of have a hard time splitting things up. The old world, the old life into new bits and new pieces. You found it hard to say that this bit is all right while that bit isn't. I can still remember when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I'm really ashamed of the way I kept the Sabbath. I used to go down to my, into my room after church and stay there almost a whole day. I didn't want to visit or talk to anyone because I didn't want to be doing my own pleasure. Well, I did, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to work it, put it all together. And some people in Corinth were struggling with, with this whole thing. 
And having lived around all that, they were really in a quandary. Yes, when you become a Christian, you put away all that darkness, and now you love the light of God and His freedom and His forgiveness. But looking back, it's hard to split it all up. And what happened in Corinth that there were some enlightened people who were strong-minded. They were the, in that section of the church. And they came with a completely different framework. They didn't believe in idols. They didn't have any trouble with idols. They believed in the one true God. They didn't see anything wrong with doing anything, anything to do with the meat offered to idols. Didn't see anything at all because it's, it's all just nothing anyway. And like Paul says, diet is not meritorious. Did you know that? You're not earning favor with God by your diet. No, you're not. You're no better in God's eyes because of what you eat. You're not. But when my indulgence, which does me no harm, okay, when my indulgence, which does me no harm, is the cause of harm to my brother or sister in Christ because their conscience says something different. My liberty should give way to love. That's what Paul says. My liberty should give way to love. You know, he didn't stop at anything to save me. He didn't stop at anything to save me. He gave up everything. He held back nothing. He went to the nth degree to save me. That's love. And so Paul says in verse 11 and 12, so this weaker brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You know, that's powerful, isn't it? If I do something that jeopardizes a brother or sister's walk with God, it's like undermining the work of Jesus Christ himself. And that's something. That raises the bar, doesn't it? No, I should probably say a little disclaimer because I spoke pretty strongly about diet. Am I a vegetarian? Am I a, you know, do, am I careful about my diet, what I do with my, of course I am, but not because I'm earning my way or finding, thinking that it's going to please God more. I just want to live my life in a way that I can best understand Him and know Him. And I think that happens best when my mind is working good, when my body's working good. When I'm, not, when I'm cleared of all this stuff that doesn't help me. So, so it happens that Paul's counsel, really, to the church in Corinth is following Jesus' model. He said in a parable. And you know this verse, don't you? Whatever you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, the way we treat others is the way that we treat our Lord. Relationships matter. How I relate to the well-being of others matters. And it would be well for me to seriously consider this matter. Jesus did, didn't he? The eternal well-being of others was utmost in his mind. Jesus said, 
if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in, believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them. Wow, isn't that strong? Really? It's a love that we desperately need today, that I need today. Right now, our nation is still reeling from the events of one week ago. Aren't we? We're struggling. I'm struggling. It seems like our nation is fracturing, doesn't it, to you? Last Saturday morning, a young white man walked into a Walmart store in El Paso. And in just a matter of moments, 22 were dead and 24 were injured. Just moments. And when the suspect was taken into custody, he told investigators that he wanted to shoot as many Mexicans as possible. Can you believe that? And just minutes before that hate-filled screed that was posted online, this. This attack is in response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Have mercy, O God. And that statement espoused a white supremacy, denounced immigration, praised the gunman who had killed 51 Muslim worshipers in March at mosques in New Zealand. What's happening to our country? And then just 13 hours later, the wee hours of Sunday morning, a shooter attacked a crowd outside a popular spot in Dayton, Ohio. And in just 32 seconds, 10 were dead and 27 were injured. 32 seconds. This past week, headlines around the world were filled with this news, you know, I'm sure. And many of them in other parts of the world posted America as a battlefield, battling itself. This is what one headline said in the Cindy Mo- Sydney Morning News. U.S. is in the midst of a white nationalist terrorism crisis. Can you believe it? Our country is fracturing. Our world is coming apart at the seams. White, brown, black are at war with each other. Asian, Indian, African, American, Middle Eastern, we're at odds. Liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, Hindu, men, women, we're at war. And it seems like the United States is at the center of the storm. It happens other places, some, but it seems like we're at the center. And I can't help but feel that Paul is challenging us. Jesus Christ is challenging us. Paul challenged the church in Corinth. God is challenging you, Village Church. Challenging me, Jeff Kinney. Let love win. Let love win. What kind of love? 
a God love, not just human love, a God love, a self-sacrificing love, an others-building love. Let this love, God's love, so invade you, so transform you, that nothing you might call your own, your rights, your knowledge, your preference, your tradition, nothing that you might call your own, let none of that come between you and anybody else ever. Let love win. God's love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and love and grace for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy that you didn't spare any expense but gave your all to save us all. And we here right at Village Church want to be a part of that great movement that you started in Jesus Christ. We want to be people that stand for you and let love win. That doesn't mean we set aside our convictions, but we let love mellow and, and help our convictions to be properly applied. So, so, Lord, we're asking for your infilling today, not of our own, but from you, that we can go from this place and make a difference in our home, in our city, in our world, bringing honor to you that others might see your goodness as you work in us and through us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.